show that all, at all times they have to pray and not lose heart the same. In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection for my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, said, Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cried to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will, he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? One of the cool things about many of Luke's uh, recounting of parables is that he tells you why Jesus told the parable. That should help us in understanding it. In this case, it's to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. So here's encouragement to keep praying and not be discouraged. What could cause us to lose heart and not want to keep praying, I wonder? I think that might be it. You know, we're expecting immediate relief. We don't get it. And it's like, well, bummer. What's the use to pray then? And uh, when we feel that inclination to be careless about prayer or to feel like it's just not worth it or just uh, we want to just kind of hurry up and get our prayers done with, that's not a good, that's not a good uh, you know, attitude. We ought to keep praying, and we ought to keep motivated to keep praying, and this story will help us. So he tells this story about a thoroughly unprincipled judge who could care less about anybody, and a widow who, normally widows, especially in ancient societies, didn't have a whole lot of leverage. You know, you would not think a poor widow seeking legal protection is going to get much out of a rascally judge. But she did. Why? She bothered him. <laughs> yeah, she kept pestering him, driving, his, driving him crazy. Kind of wore him down. He wants some peace and quiet, so finally he said, I don't care about God or man, but I gotta get some peace, and he gave her the legal protection she was wanting. So, what's the lesson in that? Is God like that judge? No, God's just and merciful. The judge was not. Are we like that despised widow to God? No. He loves us. We're his children. And uh, she was just one person versus... There's many people crying out to God. So, this is one of those, well, if even she could persuade even him, how much more can all of God's children persuade a loving Heavenly Father? You know, if even an insensitive character responds to repeated pleas from somebody he doesn't know or care about, you know a righteous God will respond to his children. This is just saying God really will hear and answer prayer. I mean... This jerk finally answered the widow's plea. You know, so you know God will. I think that's the, that's, that's the amazing lesson in this. He sets this up as almost a contrast in every way, and yet still, she continued to insist, and he finally gave her what she wanted. So what should we learn? Well, we ought to persevere in prayer. We ought to keep crying to him day and night, which is the point in verse uh, 7. 
Um, you would assume, I hope, there's no moment of the day or night when there aren't <clears throat> brothers and sisters of ours praying to God. You know, I, I would think there's the, that's around the clock, that's uninterrupted praying. Uh, and, and that's encouraging to know that our brethren are always beseeching God. It gives you encouragement that God's going to be answering. And, of course, the question is, you know, will he delay long over them? Well, if you feel like the answer is not coming as quickly as you want, don't be put off, you know, don't be disturbed. He will answer in the appropriate time. And maybe the bigger question is not God answering us, but when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Really, there's a lot more certainty we've got that God's going to answer our prayers than that men are going to keep praying. You know, that's really where the doubt lies. When he comes back, will he find anybody still serving him or not? You know, we're a lot more the weak link in that equation than he is. So you know that God is going to bring about justice for them quickly. Quickly, of course, in God's terms to some extent. But he will, and he will answer. We don't have any doubt about that. The only doubt ought to be, will we still be faithful? What was that passage that says, even though we are unfaithful, God is still faithful because he cannot be? Like it says, if we do this, he will abandon us. If we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. I think you're thinking about 2 Timothy 2. There actually are a couple of passages that are similar to that. 2 Timothy 2, uh, 11. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Is that it? Right. So God's very nature is that he's going to be faithful to us. It's just dependent on whether we have faith in him. Exactly. Other thoughts? So that's how that last statement fits in with the rest of it. Because <laughs> once again, it seems like... <coughs> Jesus always challenges our thinking. Yeah, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I think it's, you know, don't don't worry about whether he's going to come through. It's, what about us? <laughs> that's what I think. Right, here's another parable with a uh, reason for it, 9 to 14. Also, he's <clears throat> also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed <clears throat> thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give thanks of all that I, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, that man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the parable is to the people who are trusting in themselves that they're righteous and look down on others, view them with contempt. So that, we need to keep that in mind when we're reading about these two men and their temple devotions. And the first is a Pharisee. 
And he goes up, and he starts his prayer out well, don't you think? God, I thank you. (laughs) But what about God is he thankful for? (laughs) You know, all I see him ticking off is his own personal accomplishments. He's been busy tabulating the score. He'd already made out the exam, graded it himself, and given him an A+, and he's wanting to let God know about that. So he's kind of giving a testimonial. Here's what I do, God. I thank you that I'm not like these other guys. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get and so forth. Um, and so, you know, this is really not a prayer about God. This is a recital to God about himself. <clears throat> and mostly that he's better than everybody else, but also that he fasts twice a week. How many times a week were you supposed to fast in the Bible? Zero. No fasting was required except on the Day of Atonement, once a year. (laughs) And I give tithes of all that I get. Well, that's good, right? Were they required to give tithes of all that they got? Just the first fruits? No, they were required to give tithes of all that they... Owned? Not owned. I don't think so. I think ties of all that they earned. Not of all that they bought and had. I think what he's saying, he gives ties of all that he gets. Not only does he give ties of what he earns, he gives ties on what he gives ties on what he buys. Or what he what he gets given to him or whatever. You know, everything he has. Not just the things that, not his increase. That's my take on that. That could be wrong. But that's, I think that's what he's saying. So that it's, it's going above and beyond. You know, he's not just giving tithes like you would normally do. He gives tithes on everything he has. You can think about that for whatever it's worth. The tax collector, on the other hand, wouldn't even look up to God. And just says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He feels so convicted of his sin and so helpless. And probably was. Tax collectors were pathetic. They were low life. You know, they were notorious cheats and traitors. No wonder he said something like that. And, and I'm sure if the Pharisee had been listening in, he would have said, you're right. You need a lot of mercy from God. You are a sinner. But the amazing thing, the shocking end, can you imagine the people in Jesus' audience hearing Jesus say, it was a tax collector who went down to his house justified, not the other one. You know, because the Pharisee stood on his own merits, he went back to his home unaccepted, unjustified. God didn't accept him. He had proudly distinguished himself from the others, but it was really the tax collector who God distinguished from the Pharisee. You know, Prayer can be just an occasion for pride, not an occasion for humbling ourselves. So it's really, this is both encouraging and challenging. You know, what God really wants is us to humble ourselves and recognize our need and our lostness. And in one sense, isn't that nice? Isn't it nice that I don't have to develop the best resume that anybody has ever had of, of, you know, sacrifices in serving God to be accepted by Him. On the other hand, how difficult it is for us to humble ourselves. 
in one sense, this gives me a lot of hope. Well, I can do that. You know, I can I can recognize my need and humble myself before God. On the other hand, well, yeah, it's not that easy, is it? What I want is to make myself look good and feel good about my accomplishments and see my relationship with God is based upon how much I've done for him instead of really coming to him still with the God be merciful to me, the sinner. So I think this is challenging in, in application. It gives hope to all, but it's maybe easier to do what the Pharisee did than what the tax collector did. Thoughts and comments? It's interesting to me that the Pharisee's prayer is longer. Yes. <laughs> like, but that didn't do any more good. Yeah, length does not necessarily uh, signify quality. I heard someone say once that Jesus offers us something for nothing. But the challenging part is we need to come to the realization that all we have is nothing. <laughs> and that is the hard thing. <clears throat> I think we want to think of ourselves as being somewhat of a blessing to the Lord. And we, we focus on how much we've earned and how good we've made ourselves. Instead of realizing we want to, we want to serve God because we love Him. And because He's done so much for us, not because we feel adequate. I think we also need to be, we don't need to go to the other opposite and just self pity and like, oh, we're the worst, but the real key is to focus on God and not even focus on ourselves because we can focus on ourselves and boast and we can focus on ourselves and say, oh, we're the worst. But it's just forgetting ourselves and focusing on God. Yes, certainly that's a big thing. We do need to humble ourselves before God and confess our need and dependence. But you're right, the whole point of serving God is to lose our life and... You know, to let God live in us as opposed to being self-conscious and self-aware. Other thoughts? I think this is a lot more comforting when I feel a lot more like a tax collector. It's like, oh, I haven't been doing well. Well, like, this is a lot more comforting, but it's a lot harder to apply whenever you feel like you've been, like, doing pretty good. And it's probably not because of how we've been doing, but how we're thinking about all of that, yeah. Because really, we are more like the tax collector. We certainly haven't earned anything before the Lord. We still, in many ways, are like a lot, especially when you consider how much God has given us. Uh, but, you know, we're, our, fortunately, our relationship with God is not based upon being able to show God how much we've really accomplished and how much we've, you know, worked our way up the scale. It's on humbling ourselves and seeking and receiving His grace. So, you know, verse 14 is one of these kind of paradoxes. The one who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. And that leads us right into a number of encounters Jesus has with people that really illustrate how he accepted the people we would have turned away and he rejected the people we would have accepted. Jesus is interesting in that. So, 15 to 17. 
And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So, people bring their babies so Jesus would touch them, and how did the disciples feel about that? You're bothered. Yeah. They wanted everybody to go through a screening process. You know, and only the people who really warranted Jesus' attention would get through and be able to see him. Children are kind of nuisances, and they could be dispensed with. And after all, as we know, there's this ruler waiting in the wings. That's who you really want. He's rich and young and, you know, all that. (laughs) Uh, But Jesus said, no, let them come to me. You know, Jesus wanted them... He was touching them. He was holding them in a lot of cases we read in other accounts. Um, people of any size count with Jesus. And even the unimportant people Jesus valued and gave attention to. We need to be like children, I think in the sense that we are dependent and humble. And we know we haven't earned our relationship with God. You know, it fits right in with that previous story. You know, it's so easy to enter the kingdom of God, and it's so hard. It's hard, it's easy to humble ourselves on the one hand, because like I say, you don't have to develop a stellar resume, but on the other hand, it's hard to really come into the Lord's presence as a child. We'd like to come in with a little bit of a swagger. Thoughts and comments? So does the... Children here mean children? Yeah, I think so. Because the last time they used children, it wasn't children. Right. But I think here it does because they're bringing their babies to him. So I think these were literal children. And a good lesson. I mean, you know, I've probably said this before, but I mean, I think, like, sometimes we struggle with children being annoying. You know, well... I realize if they're, you know, 25-year-old children, that's a different matter. I'm talking about young children. We need to love them. We need to care about them. They're not even responsible for their actions. And, you know, I mean, do we view children as annoying in worship service? I I wish they'd shut up. You know, I wish, well, whatever. I mean, it's what, what a blessing they're there. What a blessing that, you know, their parents care enough to bring them in spite of how what, a, what trouble they'd be. And, I mean, I thought a lot more as I get older about how the children grow up and giving attention to little kids eventually, they're old enough that the attention you're giving them is now not just to a little kid, but to an adolescent or whatever that needs you. And just, you know, continue to be patient and caring about, you know, young and old alike is really, I think, the quality Jesus would have us have. Other thoughts? 18 to 23? And a certain ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. So here's this ruler questioning Jesus, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question. And uh, Jesus challenges him in a lot of ways. First of all, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, that's a bit of a challenge for us. Uh, Because wasn't Jesus good? So why does he say only God is good? Yeah. You know, um, he needs to reflect on if Jesus is a good teacher, why is he good? And it's because he's God. Um, he, you know, how many times do people say things like that and it's just flattery? And obviously it was with this guy. Because he doesn't do what Jesus said. If he really thought he was a good teacher, he would have listened. We, we praise people when we're not necessarily meaning it. So he's saying, do you really realize what this means? I think that's the idea. You know, and so would it be ever appropriate to call someone good? Like a human being good? Ever thought about that one? That's a trick question, because the Bible does. Maybe more than once. I'm thinking about Acts 11. Uh, Acts 11, 24, talking about Barnabas, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So, this is not just saying you could never use the word good to describe somebody. But but he was... Well, I, I, you might even look at it this way. You, aren't there people today who would say Jesus was just a good teacher? Well, Jesus claimed to be God. He's not a good teacher if he's not God. He was a blasphemer if he was claiming to be God and was not. You know, we can't, you know, it's like Jesus, liar, lunatic, Lord kind of a thing. You know, with the claim Jesus made, being just a good teacher is not an acceptable category. That's not an option for us. If he wasn't what he said he was, then he was either deranged or he was a liar. That's, that's our only options given what he said about himself. So that may be another way to look at this. At any rate, Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. And the guy said, yeah, I've done all those. So he'd already passed elementary religion and he was wanting to move on to advanced religion and figure out how to really get this thing done. And uh, Jesus said, well, you know, one thing you still lack... And what was that? Go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. Why would Jesus tell him that? That I don't recall him saying that normally to people. It was the one thing that stood in the way for this man. Yeah, it's the one thing he loved more than God, which meant he hadn't kept the commandments, right? What commandment had he not kept? No other gods before. That's right. Even another one. Thou shalt not covet. Yeah. 
you know, he wasn't quite as good on these uh, commandments as he thought he was. You know how that often is. Again, we kind of, uh, you know, we look at ourselves, and yeah, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that. I think Jesus, with his question, or with his statement, proves that he hasn't even kept the commandments like he thought he had, when it's all said and done. And he clearly loved his possessions more than God, because he went away very sad, for he was extremely rich. You know, and of course, the point is that he's bummed out that now he's going to have to give up his riches. He's bummed out because he's not going to be able to have eternal life. He's certainly not going to give up those riches for it. You know, that's his uh, situation. What would Jesus say to us? What would be the one thing we lack? Or in other words, what is it that for me is more important than God in my life? That's what Jesus would say to, to let go of. Thoughts and comments on that? How do we know that he is a rich young ruler? Yeah, the other gospels calling him. Okay, <laughs> I've noticed that when reading the other gospels, like it just Maybe said it was a, a man guy or with something. a similar story. <laughs> Could be, but not likely. We always give him this title, but no. you have to piece it together. That's right. We have these slogans we use, but you know, we got to do something. Gives us amusement. That leads Jesus to comment about riches, 24 to 30. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for those who are wealthy to sit into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, And who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And Peter said, Behold, we have left our home own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much as at this time and in the age to come eternal life. How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. There's probably a lot of reasons you could say that. Think about this. The more we have, the more it tends to take the edge off of our hunger for the Lord. You know, we easily become satisfied and kind of focused on what we have. So it's hard for a wealthy person to go to heaven. Of course, wealthy for us always means whoever's richer than we are. But that means wealthy for most of the world means us. Um, and then he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So he chooses the biggest animal in Israel and the smallest opening. And said, you know, it's easy to thread a camel through a needle's eye. That would be quite a trick. Uh, you know, uh, the disciples understand this as, you know, woe then, who can be saved? Jesus said, well, things that are impossible with man are possible with God. But he's saying that. Wow. The more we have, the harder it is. You know, it's just really challenging. And I think we have a lot. So this is a warning to us, and it's hard when we have so much. It's hard to even, it's hard not to be so comfortable and content with this life that we have little longing for the Lord or to be with the Lord, and little zeal for the Lord. So that's a challenge. Now, it's interesting that Peter said, well, we've left our own homes and followed you. You know, we've given up things. And they had. They'd done what the rich man had refused to do. 
which is pretty impressive. And Jesus said, well, you know, no one has left house, wife, brother, parents, children for the sake of the kingdom of God who won't receive many times as much at this present time and the time to come eternal life. So Jesus respects their, you know, giving up precious this life things and says, Willie, that's a good short-term investment and a good long-term investment. You know, long-term, it's eternal life. Short-term, you get many times as much in a in one sense of even family. But, I mean, it's just interesting. You know, you take a chapter like this, just these last few sections, Jesus is just constantly saying and doing things that are jarring. You know, we treasure the good, respectable religious performance, and in the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus rejected it. We treasure, you know, responsible, hard-working people that have got a respected net worth, and Jesus said, sell it. You know, we treasure family values. Jesus pronounced a blessing on the one who leaves house, wife, brothers, parents, and children. Now, it's not that Jesus is rejecting all religious activity or all work or all family values. But he is saying that, you know, being religious and building a nest egg and, you know, treasuring our family is not the same thing as really dedicating ourselves to the Lord. And ultimately, God must come above all those other things. It's easy for us to feel like I'm a good moral citizen and think God must be happy with me. And there were all these good moral citizens here that God wasn't happy with because he's requiring a more radical sacrifice. Thoughts and comments? Peter's response leads me to believe that he thought a lot of people around there were rich which kind of surprises me because I don't think of people in that rich is always relative rich Mm -hmm. but I think he might have thought that if the rich man can't get in who could you know I think he Um, may have almost had the idea riches would be a you know help okay not sure why he would have thought that but (laughs) other thoughts 31 to 34. They took the twelve aside and told him, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he, had, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked, insulted, spit on, and after they flog him, they will kill him, and he will rise on a third day. They understood none of these things. The meaning of the saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. Well... I mean, what do you think about what Jesus is saying in 31 to 33? Does he know what's going to happen to him, or does he know what's going to happen to him? <laughs> Isn't that a pretty detailed list? I mean, it's like he knew this whole deal step by step by step. How would that impact you if you knew all those things already? might be likely to back out or try to go another way or do something like that. Yeah, and even if we weren't going to do that, how would we be feeling? Dread. Man. You know, there are some things, just don't tell me ahead of time. You know, I don't want to have to dread it. I don't want to have to worry about it. I don't want to have to suffer ahead of time. Jesus is suffering ahead of time. He knows all of this. And, uh... He, he goes through with it knowing full well all the details of what's going to happen. Now, 
he says in about in verse thirty four in about three different ways the disciples just didn't get this at all. Why didn't they? <laughs> Because it was hidden from them. Yeah? Surely he can't mean what I think he's saying. Yeah. <laughs> this must be another parable or something like that. <laughs> you can understand why they would think that. <laughs> I think you can understand why they wouldn't want to believe it. You know, this just, this, you know, they we, we, we don't understand the things we don't want to accept. Right? You know, we'll kind of we'll kind of close our minds off and not receive things if they're not compatible with what we'd like to believe. I think that may be part of the issue here. Now, granted, hindsight's twenty twenty. It's easier to understand these things after he's, after it happened. But I'll tell you, I mean, this still is not that difficult. He'll be handed over the Gentiles, be mocked, mistreated, spit upon, and after they scourged him, they'll kill him. And the third day he'll rise again. What part of that do they not get? <laughs> you know? Uh, so, but wow, we can be the same way. I mean, we can just refuse to understand plain passages when they're just not what we wanted them to say. Other thoughts? Thirty-five to forty-three. As he drew near Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside, begging. And he heard a crowd going by. <clears throat> Hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So, Jesus is approaching Jericho and he comes across this blind man. Now, I'm going to mention a couple of things. There are some problems in reconciling this account with the account in Matthew and Mark of this story. Are you aware of that? Well, some of them, weren't there two blind men? Yeah, in Matthew there's two. Here there's one. It's like the Legion guy, there was two or one. Yeah! <laughs> Did you realize that? The guy that was Legion, there were two in some of the Gospels and just one in the others? Mm-hmm. Matthew seemed to have a uh, thing for seeing double. <laughs> he's usually the one that reports the two. I think that's relatively easy. If there were two, there was one. So, one of the guys, some of the Gospels report on one, maybe the more outstanding one, the more noteworthy one, and Matthew reports on two. Tells about both. I mean, maybe there were half a dozen here, you know. Uh, so, I, to me, that's not an issue. And, and it will happen a lot of times. You think about this. You know, uh, you come home and... and uh, you know, say to your uh, you know, family, you know, you would never guess, I saw John Doe in town today. But you actually saw John and Jane Doe. And you only mentioned seeing John Doe. 
Maybe he said to somebody else, you say, I saw John and Jane Doe today. Is that a contradiction? No. Probably saw other people in town, too. You may not know what their names were, but, you know. I mean, so that, to me, that's, that's irrelevant. There's a harder issue with this. Do you know what that is? Well, this has Jesus approaching Jericho, and some of the other Gospels have him leaving Jericho. That's a bit more challenging. Let's see, maybe we should find that. from uh, In Matthew 20, uh, verse uh, 29, as they were leaving Jericho. And uh, Mark 10, and uh, verse... Uh, 46, then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho. So Matthew and Mark, he's leaving Jericho, and here in Luke, he's approaching Jericho. How do you deal with that? So as he was approaching Jericho, there was this blind man sitting by the road begging, and as he was leaving, he was crying out after him. <laughs> That's a possibility. It may be that he met him when he was approaching but he healed him as he was leaving. Towns weren't that big, you know. I'm not talking about going through Indianapolis or something. So that would be one possibility. Another. That's two different occasions. That's a possibility. These would be very similar, but it's not totally out of the question. That these were two very, very similar events that weren't the same. Well, they heard about what happened to the guy when he was approaching, and they tried right. when he was leaving. And I mean, and there, I, you wonder, how many times did he heal blind people? And you would think, a lot. I mean, is there anything you'd rather be healed of than blindness? I mean, maybe so, but that'd be a big thing. You know, you knew somebody was blind and Jesus was around, you'd bring him to Jesus. For sure. So... I don't think that's out of the question. It's not my preference, but I think it's a possibility. There are some people who suggest this, that there was old Jericho and new Jericho, and he was leaving one and coming into the other. No, there's Vernon and North Vernon these days over in uh, Jennings County. I think it's Jennings County. And, uh, Whiteland and New Whiteland. Yeah, right, good point. So that'd be a possibility. Here's another possibility. It may be, in 35, that this should be translated as he was in the vicinity of Jericho. That may be another reasonable translation for that verb. So there's quite a few options. I don't have a strong favorite on these. Um, because I think all of them are worth considering. All of them have some merit to them. Um, none of them are, are uh, impossible. Uh, so, I just threw that out because, you know, somewhere along the line we need to know how to deal with those things or at least think about them. So, here's this blind man who finds out Jesus is passing by and he's hollering out to have mercy on him and what's the crowd doing? Trying to quiet him down. Yeah. Trying to do to the blind man what the disciples had done to the people bringing their children to Jesus. Trying to shush him. And, uh, so Jesus stopped and said, you know, having brought me, brought to him. Again, Jesus wants to heal him. He wants to have contact with him when the multitude didn't want him to. And he said, what do you want me to do for you? And what does he want? And he does. Um, and the people glorify God. 
And uh, he he himself, once he saw, he started following Jesus. Now, there's several things in this that are worth thinking about. Um, I don't know. This may be just coincidental, but it's kind of interesting. I hadn't thought about this until I read it. Do you know what the last two miracles in Luke were? Well, this is one of them, obviously. I wouldn't say that. Do you know what the last miracle in Luke is? The last miracle Jesus did. I'm not talking about the resurrection. But what's the last miracle of, that Jesus did in Luke? Yes! Exactly. Isn't that interesting? He heals the eyes and heals the ear. Uh, and seeing and hearing are important things in how we receive the gospel. That may be just coincidental, but it's kind of cool. We think it's coincidental. Yeah, maybe. But it's cool still, nevertheless. I hadn't thought about those being the last two, so. So, alright, think about this. Um, you know, think about the difference between the rich man and the blind man. The rich man walked away, the blind man follows. But really, what did the blind man give up to follow Jesus? Nothing, because he didn't have anything. Everything he had. His spot on the road. And one of the Gospels said he, he left his cloak. <laughs> but, you know, it wasn't much, was it? Isn't it easier to give up everything if you don't have anything? <laughs> That's one of the deals. It's a lot easier to follow if you haven't got anything better to do. You know, if you don't have any place to go, if if you're already used to a difficult life, follow Jesus. But if you're like this rich man, wow, that's harder to give up. You can see that idea a little bit here, I think. Um, and so, uh, again, Jesus, so you got a boisterous beggar and little children who Jesus invites to come to him, and this rich man that Jesus turns away. You know, we'd have done the opposite, unlike, uh, more than likely. Okay, comments or questions on that? Do you know why the part about him being killed and prophesying about that is in the middle of this? It seems to kind of break up the section of him dealing with all these different people. Good point, but it does fit with the theme of giving up everything, humbling ourselves, you know, and things like that. Maybe that's it. I don't know that I know. You might ask this question. You know, think about this blind man and how he refused to be shushed up. You know, he kept hollering out, you know, son of David, have mercy on me. You know, if we want Jesus, we need to, we need to holler out for him. We need to, we need to be persistent and insistent. I mean, sometimes people are like, you know, they put forth the effort. You know why he did. He was blind. And Jesus could heal him. If we saw how blind we are and how much we need Jesus, I think we'd be a lot more motivated to do whatever it took to get to him, even if other people are trying to shush us up. All right, anything else on all that? All right, well, why don't we just start with 19, then two weeks from now, I could be in Soul Camp next week, so...